Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the entertainment galaxy that's not too far away from you. <laughs> As always, this is hosted by Carl, me, and with me is Aton. I got that so backwards. Hi, Aton. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's neither a galaxy far away or a long, long time ago. I was trying to modify too many things there, and then it got all flipped around at the end, and yeah, that's this week's intro. I'm not re-recording it. <laughs> that's okay. I have to say, I'm going to miss... I mean, people are going to tell, can't tell from the title of the episode, but I'm going to miss that entrance music. It was very epic. It made the, the podcast sound super, you know, <laughs> more important and epic than what it is, maybe. <laughs> I am sure we will talk about Star Wars again on this podcast. So we can find a, a way to bring it back. And we have talked about covering some other franchises on here. So maybe I can do some fun other augmentations of our theme using multiple Creative Commons licensed music samples. Perfect. I'll take it. <laughs> but as you alluded to, this is our final episode in the Star Wars sequel trilogy trilogy that we've been doing. This is something that we envisioned as kind of a let's close the book on star wars and wait for new stuff and see how it all develops and in the time from when we started this podcast to where we are now star wars became like omnipresent and everywhere and the monoculture again so it's a little different episode than we i think envisioned for the final act of this trilogy yeah, we went from, I mean, we'll talk about it in the history, but in four months, well, like six months that we've been doing this, it went from Disney saying, we need to take it slow, to Disney saying, we need to take it super quick. Let's do all the Star Wars content. <laughs> so, yeah, they changed their minds. They did, and it's, I don't know, it's going to be a wild few years, and I'm less and less optimistic the more stuff i see so we'll we'll dig into that and dig into the reasons for that but hey i'm excited to be done with this trilogy and kind of move on and uh try some other franchises besides star wars but at the same time i think this really is such an interesting story of how a great franchise can falter and also maybe not find its footing star wars has been rebooted so many times and every time kind of the same story and maybe we can come up with some grand unifying theory of why that happens maybe i'm shooting too high here but <laughs> i think we should hold ourselves to a high level no and we've talked in i mean for sure in the other two star wars episodes but more in general how star wars is such an interesting use case of exactly what our podcast is about which is a combination of pop culture and content and strategy and media companies and theme parks and uh, a story imprinting itself into humanity and everything that comes from it. So excited to do this one last time. I am too. But before that, let's go to the opposite world from Star Wars, Disney, Marvel to the Sundance F Film Festival, which was virtual this year. But it meant that it was very easy for us to have a correspondent at the festival in Aton. It was super easy. Yeah, when they announced that it was going to be virtual, uh, they also announced that they were going to have drive-in movies all over the country. And they just so happened to have one in Austin, where I'm currently at. And I was able to go to the kind of the, the opening one from the Austin drive-in, which was also, I think, the day that Sundance opened. And I watched um, the premiere of a movie called 
Son of Monarchs. It's a Mexican-American movie directed by a Venezuelan-French director. Uh, so, Hijos de Monarca in Spanish. And first, the movie. I really, really liked it. Uh, invite everyone to look for it. It's a very visually pleasant movie. The photography is great. And it's about this... Um, He's this guy, he grows up in the middle of the Mexican monarch butterfly kind of sanctuary. And then he becomes a scientist and he's a PhD student at NYU, basically in trying to research why monarchs have like this very, or butterflies in general have this very specific color and how that works. But he also has like issues back home and how he tries to deal with leaving his family behind to go to New York but coming back and what the monarchs mean to him and his family also as a like I said a spiritual connection. Mm-hmm. So I was very happy that I got to see it in a in a very big screen, and uh, you know we didn't get the whole Sundance experience. Like there wasn't a Q and A with the director, you know nobody could come out. There was no clapping, which is weird. There was no voting, but it was the first movie experience I've had in almost a year that it's not in my TV or my computer, which was. Very nice. Yeah. I missed it. And just lastly, we I talked last week when uh, when we had Pete over, how I also missed just giving myself the chance to see a movie that I don't know anything about. I hadn't mm-hmm. watched the YouTube trailer, like, sorry, the trailer. I didn't know anything, basically. I knew a little bit about the plot. And it's just so nice to be surprised. That's an experience I really miss, just wanting to see a movie at some random time and going and seeing one right and i feel like it's a it's kind of a double-edged sword because i say i'm giving myself the chance but it's also an incredibly curated list of movies right from sundance he's not as if i'm picking something random off imdb or letterboxd Mm -hmm. Uh, but i think it could be an interesting experiment do you have some is there something like this well maybe we can start it that you just give me a movie once a week and you don't tell me anything about it, and I watch it, and I, I don't know if I would have too many that I could give you that you haven't watched, but like that part of curation and, you know, trusting the voice of someone, in this case Sundance, but I trust your the voice too, I feel like that's also something that is special. That's an interesting idea. I, I think that's, it's kind of the ethos of the original structure behind the streaming service movie, where mm-hmm. they had a cure like ever rotating selection of 30 movies and every day one would drop off and one would come in and they were kind of curating like a mini film festival. And there's kind of this sense of urgency and exploration around that. But even they have moved towards having a larger kind of indie library with that. I I do think that's an interesting feature and maybe it hews more towards the letterboxed world or the like Substack Patreon world Mm -hmm. where, people can kind of curate and recommend things. I know that people I follow on, on those platforms do use those to recommend things. And I'm also source things from podcasts and whatnot, but yeah, I like that. Or maybe just like being able to gift a, a rental to somebody without like strings attached. Be fun. I like that. I like that even more because then it's like a gift. It's not only do I recommend it, but I already exactly. you know, paid three ninety nine for it. Yeah. It would be nice. Especially in the, in the COVID world where people need, um, entertainment yeah for sure at some point i would like to do an episode around the economics of festivals especially 
Sundance because Sundance is a little different in its positioning, both in the year and the tier that it, it attracts. But one of the biggest purposes of festivals is to sell films to distributors and actually get them a distribution platform. And over time, it's shifted more and more towards streaming. And this year, of course, it's pretty much purely streaming deals with some loose theatrical deals because nobody knows what the industry is going to look like. And I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I figured deals were going to be down, then the numbers were going to be lower and everything. And it, every indicator is that it's quite the opposite, including Apple making a record-breaking purchase at Sundance. So what? How does this land on you that there's all this flurry of activity? I had the exact same hypothesis as you going in, but I, I think when I thought about it, it's similar to some of the points that I made in the Medium article I wrote about Disney. It seems like instead of people realizing that they could get amazing numbers investing less because of COVID and everyone is at home, everyone is realizing that this is the right moment to invest mm -hmm. and try to differentiate from others. And the competition is just heating up instead of the opposite. So I see it making sense. It also, yeah, your reference to CODA, which stands for Children of Deaf Adults, you know, this movie that sold for $25 million to Apple. And it sounds like there was an auction between them and Amazon which makes it kind of more, even more obvious that the price will go up. There's these two giants where their streaming are the most similar, I think, to each other, where each one is kind of the cherry on top to the people mm -hmm. that are in their ecosystem. They're shooting for quality, not quantity. So, you know, they might be willing to pay more, especially Apple. And I think at the end of the day, it sounds like it's, it's more kind of where it's going it's going more to it's heating up instead of um, slowing down. Yeah. I, I think at least for the next year, films are just going to be viewed as lost leaders for growing streaming. And I think this is great, a great place to acquire things that are by all accounts cheap for their quality. Like here you can spend $25 million to get the rights to Coda to put it on Apple TV plus. Whereas if they wanted to do the same thing. I mean, look, they were willing to spend how many billions mm. potentially on Bond? Like, it's an entirely different value prop for the amount of money you're putting into a finished product. The one thing that surprised... Well, it's not surprising, but we've talked about the pros of investing in TV shows versus movies for streaming, especially for non-Netflix players that are open to releasing once a week, and how that... You know, they just keep the conversation in-house and, you know, The Mandalorian, it's four months of conversation. And now, you know, Netflix now is like Bridgerton, but it's been mm -hmm. like two weeks and it's going to last like maybe two more weeks, you know. So it is interesting. Disney is very obviously doing that. Like they moved a couple of movies to Disney Plus, but it's mostly TV shows. And Apple TV, I feel like if you ask anyone on Apple TV what's the best thing there, I feel like everyone would say Ted Lasso. Yeah. Like, nobody's going to say Greyhound or On the Rocks or, well, maybe we would say Wolf Walkers. But, you know, like, it it does seem to be, like, the TV show-centric. Yeah. Both in terms of engagement and hours people watch and stuff like that. But it's, you know, they might yeah. be investing also. There is just not that TV show since Sundance. I think that's by design, though, because TV is what gets people glued to coming back and engaging with the platform every week. I mean, Netflix is the only service that's doing binge drops beyond an episode or two at this point everyone else is trying to stretch engagement which is smart and i think prudent and it's working 
but the films, I think, are just kind of a flashy way of, of saying, like, here we are, here's what we're doing, we're funding independent film, whatever. And I think their investment strategy so far has very much been library-focused with films, where it's like, what films do we want to acquire that are kind of be, they're going to be things we can be proud of in five years instead of things that are just going to bring people in. I think their genres they're investing in are pretty broad. Like Greyhound is just kind of generic war movie and Coda is, and like Palmer and these other things that are coming out are pretty generic. Like, I don't know, sad indie dramas. It sounds like. Yeah. I like like that. Sad (laughs) indie dramas. Yeah. But I don't think it's a bad investing strategy. Yeah. I have a very logistical question yeah. for you. Logistical question, logistical questions. Amazon and Apple fighting for this movie. Were they literally, like, the first time any of them saw the movie was in the screening that Sundance have for, like, the regular public? I know they have pressers for the press, like, a day before, but how does how does that part, uh, part works? So this is part of why, like, I was super disenchanted with Sundance after going two years in a row is just realizing that the festival that the general public gets to attend is kind of this pageantry of uh, forced scarcity around screening Mm -hmm. these movies (laughs) to people and like kind of the, also the pageantry around like, let's trot out the, the, the cast and, uh, the crew and everything and just like hype this thing because that's like spinning it that's creating this hype machine that's what's I think feeding the audience reaction that's getting people to make these massive bids but the real festival in every other year except for this year is taking place in all of those hotels where you see people coming mm-hmm. in and out of like near the grocery store the Sheraton or the, or the Hilton something yeah. exactly like all these generic conference center hotels like and all they have are all the conference rooms and like all the suites and everything just have projectors set up where they're screening them kind of all day and then people are making offers and people are making deals in hotel rooms so like these lame business hotels are the epicenter of the film industry for that so normally it would probably be reps from amazon and apple kind of in rooms and having people go back and forth with it or I, i don't know what sort of thing they're actually doing with the bidding but in this case it was all happening virtually instead yeah i'm sure somebody at apple had a screener link for this like a few days ago like they they try and intentionally create time scarcity but it's not the the same timeline that you and i get to get to see but in a regular year it's kind of at least at almost the same time like a day before you have to still be in park city you have to be in one of those hotels. It's kind of a little bit like happening in real time, quote unquote. Yeah. We should do an episode about festivals. I find them fascinating. Yeah, I we absolutely should. And I, I think it does differ. I don't think there's like, maybe Sundance has restrictions around what can be shown to who privately. Mm-hmm. But I imagine there's some inkling of it. And with canned especially, you see lots of like pre-canned deals come out where people have already... <laughs> Free, pre-canned? <laughs> you get it yes i did nice pretty good pretty good (laughs) so yeah i'd i'd like to do a deeper dive on on sundance and what a strange crazy bizarro place it is it's i think one of the few times you can kind of go to a place and feel like that's the most important place to be like in culture at any given time 
like even like a music festival or like Coachella or something, it's like not quite that experienced. Right. It's it's very good for your ego. It is. Right? You feel like you're more important than you actually are. Well, okay. But, Being I mean, there is good for your ego. Subsisting off right. of hors d'oeuvres that like a sponsor paid for and watching better parties through a window is makes your ego disappear. I, I just want to sit, put it here for the record for the world to listen. I remember getting back to the Airbnb, not even that that late, at like 8. And we were, you know, pretty close to downtown Park City. You opened DoorDash and the options were Wendy's and Burger King. And that's it. Yeah. So it's definitely, so, yeah, if you're not in the in-in, it's definitely not that special. But definitely for your fake self-esteem of thinking you're, yeah. Anyway. Very true. Okay, so should we put Star Wars to bed now? Let's let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So, when last we met with the Star Wars sequel trilogy, we talked about the, I think, impact of The Last Jedi and Solo on the franchise, and, and also a variety of things like Colin Trevorrow getting fired from Episode Nine that were starting to shape the franchise, the cracks were starting to show. We also ended on sort of a, a bright spot, or I guess on Bright Suns, with <laughs> with Galaxy's Edge launching or being in the works. And so now with this episode, we are going to dive into Rise of Skywalker, um, Galaxy's Edge actually opening kind of what the next steps in the franchise were. You want to start with Rise of Skywalker? Let's do it. So, yeah, we would, let's talk about, I guess, let's get our feelings out of the way on this one before we actually have a rational discussion. Yeah, the first thing, I'm going to try to go time-based. Like, great trailer, great teaser, mm-hmm. I thought. I remember Ray running in the desert, running over, uh, jumping over Kylo Ren's, you know, TIE fighter, beautiful. I think to this day, it has my favorite piece of score. There is this version of the, the main song with, like, I don't know if it's, like, French horns or... I don't know. It's beautiful. I don't think, even think it made it to the movie. But I remember watching the trailer and being like, well, you know, maybe they're going to build on The Last Jedi, which we both loved, and do something special. Do you remember seeing the trailer? I do remember it. I remember being really floored by it. I think what really got me was uh, whenever Kylo Ren's ship is attacking and the score starts swelling and then kind of releases into what I expected would be a one of many Star Wars themes, like probably the Force theme or the main fanfare or something. But instead, it's Leia's leitmotif, which mm-hmm. really, the first time I, I watched it, really crushed me because I don't know, it's still kind of in my feels about Leia being dead because she had just died when Last Jedi came out. And this was also always planned very publicly for... This would be Leia's movie, so you had you started with the Han movie, and then you had the Luke movie, and then you end with the Leia movie, and obviously that had to be rethought after Carrie Fisher died. But I was just so like that set the tone perfectly to me. Whereas like that's the cue they're going to use with this like saga ending epic. Great trailer, I agree. Yeah, great trailer. And then I remember, you know, buying tickets for opening weekend. Mm-hmm. I think we were in Stanford, and oh no, 
I was on a trip and I couldn't watch it until January, I think. And I remember like 10 minutes in when Poe is like light jumping between planets or something. Just being like, every scene is like a second long. Mm -hmm. Like nobody's talking with anyone. There has been like zero anything like character development or anything and and being like oh no this can this is going to go bad very quickly because i remember having seen the reviews and being disappointed and then being like you know it might not be that bad it might not be that bad we've said i've said every episode that i'm very easy to please and then like halfway through the movie just being like it's not doing it for me it's everything's too quick i care about these characters when i think of star wars like you know when i think of the empire strikes back and you know, I think of Luke, I am your father. But that fight and that conversation lasts like five minutes. Yeah. Like there is something building. There's something that's, you know, and here everything seemed to be the opposite. Everyone is everything is quick, everything is fast, everything is this get you from this McGuffin to the next one kind of very, very, very quickly. And it just didn't have a meaningful kind of emotional impact to me, which is something that I have with most others. Even with The Force Awakens, where I, which I found, mm-hmm. I think like most people, two carbon copy of A New Hope, there was still something about like getting to know Rey and Finn and Poe and that just wasn't here. This film, I mean, The Force Awakens, you're excited, I think, to be back in that world, but the characters are also fresh and exciting. You have this stormtrooper who defects based on his conscience you have this i guess roguish flyboy who's not developed which is kind of a perfect like han solo like Mm -hmm. archetype from there you have this nobody who has a more mysterious mystery box pass than luke did and then you have this very interesting morally dubious compelling villain and those are kind of the, the four characters you grow with and you're invested in those. The Last Jedi, I think, stretches and does a lot with all of those characters, uh, adds a new one. And then we get to this one and it feels like every character has changed somehow, I feel like, despite it being nominally like three days after the events of The Last Jedi. <laughs> but right. it just all of a sudden feels lived in like it feels like it's the cast of a sitcom that has just been hanging out for a while and all these characters are kind of just reduced back to being their basic archetype instead of these richly complex drawn characters that we watch grow over two episodes and like i legitimately would have given adam driver an oscar for the last jedi and he looks at best bored and at worst just like irritated that he has to be on screen in every scene. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the, I rewatched it in preparation for today, yesterday, between yesterday and today. And I even felt like, you know, it's going to be just one of those fun movies to watch, you know, like for example, infinity war. I don't love infinity war, but it's a, it's a fun movie. I would watch it in any plane. I find it very fun. Like, you know, some of the battles are great. Some of the visuals are great. I find the movie fine. And again, it's never going to be... But it's just... It might be fun. So I was like, you know, this might I, actually I will be fun. Never, the second time I'm going to watch it. I will never accept that Infinity War is fun. But I'll give you Endgame. We can use Endgame for the example. <laughs> no, because Endgame is really good. Anyway. And <laughs> it wasn't even that. 
Everything happened so quickly. I, I, I had forgotten. There is a real issue with there being no stakes. It is a huge... It's, it's, it's an issue. Chewbacca dies, but he doesn't die. They explode Kijimi, but the only two people that we know from that planet survive. C-3PO loses his memory, but he doesn't. Nothing happens. Yeah. Nothing matters. And I think that definitely takes away from the fact that, you know, these people are fighting for the galaxy. You're like, eh, what are they? <laughs> Death as the only stakes that matters is like a frustrating trope. But if you're going to kill someone off, at least like have the decency to make it permanent, you know, like if you're going to, you can't have your cake and eat it too with being like, oh, anybody can die at any time, what have you. And then this and, the Chewbacca and the C-3PO ones would have been, like, the Chewbacca, uh, when Rey, like, uses her Palpatine, and we'll get to Palpatine, her Palpatine powers for the first time, it's a pretty compelling scene. Like, she's fighting against Kylo, this, it's visually very exciting, and then it explodes. That would have added a lot of emotion. Yeah. Even C-3PO, right? When he's like, I'm looking at my friends from the last time, it's a pretty emotional moment, and then it doesn't matter. The other Kijimi, I mean... Bubble Freak is fun and whatever, but they introduced the characters 10 seconds ago. C-3PO and Chewbacca literally have been since the... Well, C-3PO literally since the first movie. Mm-hmm. Chewbacca, so many, but I that, that landed... I had forgotten, and that is a huge issue. Look, we could be here all day talking about the, the failures of the film, which <laughs> I think people on b- both sides of the aisle around The Last Jedi are just really just do not like and are repulsed by this film. Right. And I, you haven't read Duel of the Fates, have you? I did. Today. You did? Okay. Yes, all of it. Tell us about it. Remind us also, I think it might be useful if somebody didn't listen to the first one, the TLDR around the Colin Trevorrow right. change and stuff. I think that would be useful. So TLDR... Okay. I, I hate being me sometimes where for me TLDR is like, okay, what level of 20 minutes? <laughs> right, exactly. So I'm going to try and keep it, keep it short. Kathleen Kennedy is looking for a star Wars director. Cause all the big guns first, your Nolans, your Spielbergs, they say, no, thanks for calling. Then they move to the next logical level, which is the kind of friendly Disney brain trust like brad bird he was thinking about it he wanted to do Tomorrowland instead he had already recommended colin trevorrow to steven spielberg for jurassic world when brad bird was offered that so spielberg and and bird kind of pushed the pot towards trevorrow doing a star wars film later jj abrams came on to do force awakens he was a pretty natural choice based on his work on star trek ryan johnson was put in place to kind of boldly set what the, the vision is in episode eight. Then Trevor is going to wrap up the pieces and it was supposed to be a baton toss where they're all working in concert. That all falls apart. There seems to be no baton tossed at all. Trevor makes book of Henry, a hilariously bad film that is on the level of cats and how insane and bad it is. And he gets fired. And then they bring in JJ Abrams because basically at that point, things are starting to get weird with the fan reaction to the last Jedi, or they they might worry, they're worrying internally that that's going to be the case, and J.J. knocked it out of the park with Force Awakens, so 
they bring him on. They bring the screenwriter of Argo and Batman v Superman and Justice League on to write it. So, hey, based on that pedigree, I should love the movie, but <laughs> you that's where we're at. But what we're talking about when we say Duel of the Fates is Colin Trevorrow's original screenplay with Derek Connolly, his frequent writing partner, where it was leaked online, wasn't officially discredited. Everything is... There's too many signs pointing towards this being the actual screenplay that was rejected, and it's completely out there for you to read if you just Google Duel of the the Fates screenplay. Yeah, I guess you were asking for my opinion on Duel of the Fates when I asked you to go on that tangent. I really like some parts. I didn't really like others. I think the the Raylo side of the story, it's significantly more compelling than the than the one in Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. There is no Palpatine. And this is just about Kylo being completely obsessed with becoming, like learning, you know, this uh, death magic or whatever that Darth Vader was never able to find and becoming as strong as whatever Sith has ever become. And Rey just being like very... I don't know if the word is frustrated, but like she really kind of wants to deal with Kylo and figure it out. Yeah. And there is this epic battle at the end in this like mythical um, planet and the, you know, at the top of this like mountain or pyramid. And it just feels like their relationship actually built up to something. And there was a resolution there as opposed to in The Rise of Skywalker where it becomes like, you know, oh, yeah, they kind of like each other and they're going to get together and fight this other guy and just basically forget about this balance that was supposed to come. They they talk about yeah. it in Rise of Skywalker, but not really. The part that I didn't like, and I would love to hear your thoughts, is all of the chorus, the other side of the battle, it's in Coruscant, mm-hmm. like a rebellion against the government. And when I was reading about it, it, sounded, it reminded me of like the Hunger Games. Yeah. Like they rebelling against Snow. And I'm like... This is an empire that it's all over the galaxy. Why would this one battle in this one place, even if the government is there? Like, it, I never got that the stakes were so high for that side of the story. I mean, that's kind of the fundamental flaw of Star Wars, is that blowing up a big space station would actually do anything. <laughs> and that's something that I think the Mandalorian tries and succeeds at explaining is why the First Order would exist when it's just like, literally, it's impossible to stop this out unless you're vigilant and have the entire power of an empire to do so. Uh, I like the Coruscant business because it gives Finn purpose and something to do, and it mm-hmm. also gives Ro pur- or Rose purpose. Right. It, and it, it's so interesting, and I think the reason that this, this screenplay really works for me as far as, like, this is probably a valid thing that was written as opposed to, like, working as a screenplay is there's so many little overlapping things like there's a new character that's kind of the leader of the, the stormtroopers on Coruscant that corresponds to uh what's her what's your character's name Janna in Rise of Skywalker yeah yeah I think so there's uh the stuff in like this forest kind of gloomy planet that maps to what we eventually see with Palpatine's planet Exegol but for me yeah is this a perfect movie no is this like Last Jedi or even The Force Awakens no but I legitimately was moved to tears reading this screenplay because I felt c- catharsis and like all the character arcs had actually been wrapped up as set up as opposed to this like kind of 
dilution of the franchise into, oh, Palpatine's back. Somehow we have to go kill him. Like, it just, it actually had had narrative stakes and kind of mm-hmm. emotional closure and a lot of just, it all worked for me as opposed to nothing working in the Rise of Skywalker screenplay. We're on the same page. And I think, you know, some of the defendants, I, we don't want to get into like the whole internet battle, but they're saying like, you know, in the original trilogy, Palpatine wasn't really important until the last one. So this one kind of maps to that. And I think our biggest thing is like, well, yes, but like George Lucas didn't know it was going to be a trilogy when he started, right? He changed so many things along the way because he could. Yeah. He kind of, you know, he suddenly got the extra movies. This is not that. This was supposed to be kind of a an arch that was planned since the beginning. And I think one of the reasons why it, it also feels like the Duel of the Fates is actually pretty, you know, kosher and real is that you can see all of the things that they took from it, right? Yeah. They took, uh, for example, all of the R2-D2, which I, that works significantly better in Duel of the Fates. Mm-hmm. R2-D2 gets like shot and they have to take his memory drive. And when they bring it back to him, he kind of flashes back the history of the last six movies, which yeah. would have worked very well. They did that with C-3PO, but it didn't really work. There is also the... Uh, you mentioned Finn kind of caring about the other stone troopers, but it doesn't really landing at all. I think on the on the Rise of Skywalker, there is the Leia kind of talking to Ben mm-hmm. in the most important battle in order for Ray to be able to win. But it's gonna be one of those what ifs yeah. that we're gonna live for. And I love the 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 coolest part of the what if is all the story that you gave. Everything that had to happen and how we, you can connect the dots backwards <laughs> all the way to whatever. Maybe Brad Bird saying no to The Force Awakens. Yeah. And then there is like 10 things. Maybe Brad Bird saying no to Jurassic World. <laughs> right. Exactly. I guess even that. And a lot of white dudes had to make bad decisions. For <laughs> a lot of white dudes. Uh, I guess, yeah, let's get specific, uh, even if quickly. Thoughts on Palpatine? And Ray being Palpatine, you care, not care, oh me. God. I mean, it, it's just like so creatively bereft, you know? It's just, I think the worst thing everyone feared going into The Last Jedi is that she was going to be a Kenobi, but at least that would be like mm. something outside the Skywalker bloodline. It would have been like, I think, thematically interesting. We don't know what happened to Kenobi. We did, If we got to have like a Disney Plus series connection, like a Kenobi series makes sense, sure. But, okay. Yes, canonically, if we or if we look at the Legends canon, the old expanded universe canon, yes, Palpatine cloned himself, kind of was in force limbo like Voldemort, where he wasn't dead, but he wasn't alive, <laughs> and then he got his body back like Voldemort, and then he came back like Voldemort. So that is the thing that's established, and sure, we could do that, but why would we do that? What does Palpatine have to do with this story? He's deeply uninteresting even the Dermot is creepy but that's about all that's going for it and then he doesn't even come back in the movie he came back on Fortnite, and then poe announces that oh he he came back and we don't know how wow <laughs> like it's just so sloppy it's so sloppy that exactly that first time when he's like yes he's back and we heard him on a transmission and something something is like what just like that and he's like yeah if you wanted to hear it you need to go to fortnite this game 
to listen to exactly what he says. Yeah, that was very bizarre. Raisa Palpatine, but she's also a Skywalker at the end because it's her adopted family. And just, we 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 literally, like the in the movie before, I think pretty solidly moved away from the Force being like a blood disease that rich people or <laughs> the royalty had. It's basically just Force hemophilia. And then like, it's not anymore because we've moved away and then it's Force hemophilia again. So here we are. Yeah, for me, the whole Palpatine thing boils down to the very simplistic really liking The Last Jedi and saying, you know, if Luke threw all of this up to the trash because he his point is the Force is everywhere. Nobody owns it. You know, everyone can do it. Yeah. And then be completely being thrown out and being like, no, you have to be related to one of these guys and it, you need to have midi-chlorians and if not, you're never going to be that important. I mean, this happens a lot right. in the movie. You know, they say, oh, let's do the Hodor maneuver. And they literally say like, oh no, that's one in a million. You know, poo-poo than the last Jedi. And, but that, I think that was the biggest thing for me. Yeah. I think the, one of the problems with the Rise of Skywalker is that, okay. If you went up to nine-year-old me, who had just seen Return of the Jedi, and, is, and said, okay, make a Star Wars movie write it down i probably could have come in spitting distance of the rise of skywalker not because it seems like a child wrote it but because it really just seems like oh yeah like was wasn't it cool when darth vader threw his lightsaber in return of the jedi well what if there was more of that and there was more palpatine and all this stuff but also instead of one big super star destroyer layer or laser we had ten thousand hundreds of thousands of them <laughs> And they were all fighting, and all the spaceships came. Like, it really just feels like somebody throwing all their toys at the screen, hoping that it'll impress you. And it just ends up being mush that you can't care about. Yeah. And I think that's where we come back to, you know, if we think of all of these things being in a balance between art and, you know, creativity and storytelling and science slash, you know, business slash money, you can kind of see why this happens, right? You took a swing in The Last Jedi, there was some backlash, you turned the pendulum back down, you tried to say, no, we need to make money, we need to close this out, there is a fan base that cares a lot about this, you know, let's do the greatest hits, let's bring in everyone back, no. let's make it, you know, nobody dies, you know, it's kind of expected, and that's when we bring back the point of, well, Disney bought it, right, what, what did we expect? And it's just one of those things where we could say, you know, maybe in Duel of the Fates, it, it's kind of the same, right? There is still a lot of stuff that works very well, but creatively it closes the story in a better way. Or even saying, like, why didn't they do even something completely different? And the reality is that in the media entertainment, especially with these big studios, creativity doesn't leave in a vacuum. It's never going to be, I'm going to tell the best story if it doesn't also you know, checks these other boxes that we need, which for Disney are very specific, but also for a lot of these other studios. So, you know, not to say creativity is not going to happen, but understanding the the realm with, within each... How do you build that sentence? The realm where it operates, I guess, you kind of start to see what you could build and what you couldn't. It's a little bit sad, but it's a reality. I think that's a, a perfect segue over to Galaxy's Edge, 
where we similarly think that there's a lot of squandered potential here and and it just seems to be kind of a mess and for me narratively where the the germ of it being a mess comes from is the fact that it's rather than set kind of outside of the Star Wars canon or in like the original trilogy or some other or some space after episode 9 it's supposed to take place between the last jedi and the rise of skywalker and this nebulous like resistance forced order base and so it like kind of places you outside of time though as i mentioned that time seems to be again like 3 days or something like it <laughs> it's very much compressed because it seems to be literally the jungle base they they end up on right some... it looks at least very similar yeah it's it's all very the the timeline's very suspect. But anyway, you're you're placing it in this kind of unknown area of Star Wars history that's connected to these very specific stories that don't connect to each other ultimately because of how this franchise was mismanaged. But then you're spending billions of dollars to put a massive story that you can't get rid of easy, easily and retheme into a theme park. But I think I put my the horse the horse behind the cart here so <laughs> you want to walk us through kind of where we left off with galaxy's edge to this the narrative problems that i have yeah i think yeah kind of where, where we left it off is that disney one of the reasons why star wars landed no pun intended so perfectly within disney is because disney could do with it significantly more than some of the other potential buyers and one of those big things could be theme parks mm-hmm. If Disney thrives in immersive experience and creating worlds, they suddenly said, well, they didn't suddenly say, since they bought Star Wars, they were planning on it, but they were, they said, we're going to go all in. We're going to build the largest expansions ever, the most expensive lands, the most immersive lands in both Disneyland in Anaheim and in Disney World. And like Carl was mentioning, they decided to, I think, rightly so, to create a new planet but at the same time, they said, we can't really go that far. So we have to kind of put it somewhere in between so that people can actually relate to some of these things. So it landed kind of in the middle. They call this place Batu, And they said, we're going to go all in. We're going to have rights. We're going to have a marketplace. We're going to have places to eat. But once you go in... You're going to have a reputation, and based on what you do in one ride, the person at the canteen is going to greet you differently if you're with the Resistance or with the First Order. And then the next time you ride the game, it's also going to take into account your reputation. And they kind of pitch this grand vision of this is what it should be, right? This is kind of, I think from your and my perspective, like the perfect theme park of the future. Super immersive, super connected maybe even if you went different different days it would remember you and just like this very cool kind of next step into what a a a first person i guess experience could be something that nintendo and universal seem to have potentially pulled off with the nintendo world or what is it super mario land i can't remember what the name of it is i think yeah one super mario land sounds right something (laughs) like that where you are using like iOS and Android apps to augment the experience and like pretty easy, like Bluetooth, low energy data, like proximity data stuff to figure out like where you've been and what you've done. 
And really, it's just all about the immersion and the engagement, like having stuff like you and I really love and miss in modern Disney is just the attention to detail of having like little animatronics or like whimsical things and getting to apply that to Star Wars to make you really feel like, oh, there's a gonk droid walking by or, oh, there could be like a, a battle that's staged here on a stage right here at, <laughs> at any time of day. And like instead, it's just it ends up being a ghost town. Yeah, I think we did mention it to your point of Universal. We did mention that this is kind of Disney's reactions to Harry Potter mm-hmm. and the Wizarding World, which is widely successful, especially in Orlando, where it connects two parks. And they literally got the Imagineer, well, Scott Trowbridge, who was Scott, well, Trowbridge. Yeah. He was at Universal. They got him to Disney. They put him in charge of everything Galaxy's Edge. And I think we should, like, let's get to opening Galaxy's Edge, when they announced what I was saying, like, they super, super over-promised. They didn't really say exactly what rides they were going to be. But because the interweb is crazy, they find everything. And there was supposed to be, like, three rides and a theater. But when they get closest to launch, they say there's going to be only two rides. Um, the Falcon, the Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run and Rise of the Resistance. And on opening, it's only going to open with one. The Falcon Smuggler's Room. And the original ride that was cut was just supposed to be like a a people mover, which is a specific type of ride system at Disney where you can see it in the Tomorrowland Transit Authority. But it's essentially a bunch of slow cars that move around on the ground, but it's fun and automated and and kids like it. And it's a place to cool off. And it was going to be, I think, was it Bantha themed? Yeah, I think so. You would... Yeah, sit down and wobble on top of them. Right. So just like a a fun kid ride that would kind of eat people and and move around the park and probably give you a pretty cool perspective of Batu. And from my perspective, I'm very similar to our our friend. We love Podcast Ride. And I think Scott there, he always talks about kinetic energy Mm -hmm. and how cool it's on the theme parks to see things moving. I really like that. You see the train going by, and you see something moving, and you see a boat going around, and you see the carriage and whatever, and that would have added a lot of kinetic energy to to Galaxy's Edge. And I think... uh, Let's split it into. The first thing is that when it opened, literally when it first opened, Disney made this huge deal of, we're going to get super busy. So we're going to restrict... It opened first in California, which most of the people that go there are annual pass holders that are just locals. They live there. And they restricted them. They couldn't. They didn't let them go for like months. And they really scared people off from how busy it was going to be. And then the people didn't come. It was a pretty relatively muted response because not only did people don't come because they were afraid, but past annual pass holders couldn't go either. So then it was suddenly kind of a, the opposite reaction from what they wanted. A few weeks ago, Disney announced that they're killing annual passes, at least in their original form, which, like you mentioned, is how Southern California residents typically just went to the park on a random afternoon or a day. And that's a lot of the traffic. And do you think that that cancellation has anything to do with this specifically and like kind of how they failed to manage all the expectations here or do you think it's just wide more widely something they wanted to get rid of anyway as those have become more popular that's a good question i think it's definitely a boring combination of things i think 
this was a perfect example of some of the problems with the annual pass, even though there were different tiers. Mm -hmm. It was relatively static. Like when you bought the pass, you saw the calendar and you knew exactly where you could and you couldn't go. And it was very difficult to manage the the load of the park on a day-to-day basis. I think literally after that, they introduced the Flex Pass, which is, which is this version of the annual pass where you have a calendar, but you need to make a reservation in advance mm-hmm. to go, which gave Disney the you know perfect information of when people were going to come and being able to cap and manage it better. And then I think COVID, even though Disneyland hasn't opened and it's only been in Orlando, they've done this reservation system where they know exactly when everyone is coming as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, before you could buy a peak day and basically go any day of the year that you wanted if you had a peak ticket. And they realized that for California where attendance is so variable based on locals, suddenly having these annual passes don't make sense. I think they're going to bring something back. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's going to probably look more like the flex pass and a reservation system. And they're going to be able to cap it and manage it better. And uh, similar to what I wrote, I know I'm talking a lot about that this week. It's the perfect time. COVID gave them the perfect excuse Mm -hmm. to say, hey, this is going away because, you know, things change and we need to manage it differently. We're going to bring something new. And, you know, for a lot of people that are locals, even having like the $1,000 a year pass, that was like the most expensive, it was a hell of a deal. Oh yeah. Like if I if I lived in LA, I would definitely get that. Like no questions asked. That's like eight visits, like probably six visits all all told if you're doing yeah. foot parks. Yeah. And it includes like free parking and mm-hmm. 20% off in food, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think about it? Well, what something that you building off what you were just saying, I'm wondering if we're gonna go back to some sort of like e-ticket system. <laughs> Where mm. back when you first went to no. Disney, oh, I know, but it, it would make sense now that we can, like, we can lo- load balance that. So back in the early days of, of Disney, you got a book when you walked in where it, there were different tickets. So we've, we've mentioned e-ticket attractions here before, and essentially e-tickets were the ticket that you had the least of in your ticket book, and they're the really flagship attractions. So in right in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, for example, the e-ticket attractions are Rise of the Resistance and Smuggler's Run, which is the Millennium Falcon. And the people mover thing that didn't end up existing, that might be a C ticket or a B ticket, something that you have a lot of tickets to use and you might use it. But they use this to help load balance and also kind of build anticipation for larger events. And I think you could go buy more e-tickets or whatnot if you needed to. So now I'm wondering if we're load balancing everything on the fly day of if they're like up oh, to ride rise of the resistance today you have to spend an extra 10 bucks on your ticket i could totally see them doing that similar to like how peacock is managing their price tiers based on how much you want to watch the office yes <laughs> how much do you want to have to work to ride rise of the resistance <laughs> yeah join club 33 and then you can ride it <laughs> yeah, and because I like I have to say, I think we went to Galaxy Search together for when we went for the first time. Yes. Had you gone there before? Okay. I had not. So we went before Rise of the Resistance opened, which we should say, people that have ridden it say is like the best theme park ride in the world. It's a pain apparently, it breaks down a lot. You need to get there and make a reservation because the line is virtual even before COVID. But it's supposed to be kind of incredible the mix of a dark ride a drop ride 
animatronics, screens, size, everything that you might want. Different ride systems. You start in one and then you move to another. And it's supposed to be great, but we haven't done it. <laughs> We've both watched ride-throughs of it, but we haven't done it. <laughs> oh, multiple. But I have to say, when we went to... I, I kind of liked it. Maybe it wasn't my favorite land, but I thought it was like... Seeing the Millennium Falcon, it's kind of incredible. I thought the ride... I'm, we should talk about the Falcon in a sec, but I enjoyed it just because I've ridden only once. We had a restoration for the Cantina, which was fun. But I think it's exactly what you're saying. Where Galaxy Search ended up being is that it has like these e-tickets all the way at the top. And then it has a ton of eh things, yeah. like the stores. And especially if you don't want to pay to build a lightsaber or a droid. And it's really missing the, you know, I'm going to sit in New Orleans Square and see people watch and a band is going to come over and the boat is going to go and I'm just going to grab Ines and sit down, you know? Or like the Adventureland yep. sitting and see the theme, the Big Thunder go and move. And it kind of missed this middle, this middle class of theme park that it's actually what kind of, I think, builds and differentiates um, Disney. Even if the land, again, I think it looks great. And it, it might still be the only time in history that Disney has over-promised and under-delivered, usually mm -hmm. under-promised and over-delivered because of all the things that they scaled back. But I, I would just say I, I didn't hate it as much as some people hate it. And I really like the Ronto wraps. I think they're great. The Ronto wraps are, I think, the best casual, easy-to-eat food item in Disneyland. I mean, I know you're partial to corn dogs and whatnot, but a Ronto wrap does feel a little bit more premium and like a meal. It's better. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's essentially a euro with a hot dog in it, but it's great. <laughs> but to, to your point, absolutely. If That's what we like about the Disney parks. We don't like going and riding the rides because if we did, we would go to Six Flags and ride the best Six Flags rides all the time. We like the experience of being there and just sitting on a bench, hanging out for a second, resting and watching a, a band or something happen that's interesting and that's what why there's gazebos and bandstands and other things all around the park is to it's all about load balancing and kind of pulling people away and then they open this park where or this land where it truly is a land they, this could not sustain more than a few hours of entertainment for anyone once you've ridden the two mm -hmm. two rides because it is just a bunch of small shops literally like stands not even like they're stalls they're not big flagship shops and some things to look at but there's there's no like battles happening there's some stormtroopers marching around being annoying but there's there's nothing to keep you there and hanging out in that land except for ride lines absolutely and I think now that you mentioned ride lines, I do want to touch on the the Falcon, because I think it's it's the perfect ride in concept. Let me tell you about it, Carl. How about we build a ride that is based on one of the most iconic pieces, mm -hmm. like you know set pieces ever. You're gonna be able to sit in those places, like Tony Baxter said. You're gonna have different experiences each time you ride because you can be in a different role each time. It's going to be screen-based and reprogrammable so that we can create different adventures with time and always keep it very fresh. And uh, we can we can extend it or lower it as much as we need because we can change the time and get feedback, right? 
on on paper it sounds good. I'm laughing because every time Disney promises a modular ride that can be updated in the future, it never gets updated ever. I look at your start tours and getting updated just means changing like one scene. Yeah. But in paper, it sounds good. The problem is like they took all of those and they did the worst with them, right? The experience mm-hmm. is kind of different depending on where you sit, but it's not really. It's exactly the same. There isn't that much that you can do. They haven't changed even a scene in two years, two and oh. a half years. The the simulation is relatively you don't really have any angles of like liberty to do anything different or go anywhere different. It's only six people per... I mean, they have multiple cockpits, but it's only six people, so it's actually relatively long lines all the time. So it's... uh, The whole plot is to... You're trying to find... So one of the, like, four things that Disney decided was important in the sequel trilogy was coaxium, which is hyperspace fuel. It became a consumable resource (laughs) that we cared about all of a sudden once we had to do a Kessel run. But with that, that's what this is, is you're basically doing a, a heist to steal some from a ship but there's no like dog fights there's there's nothing spectacular about like flying around to the falcon or even like touring around and, and even the sense will be the one role set of roles where you would have control you're not piloting it you're just kind of moving it left or right or up and down uh there's two gunner roles where you just push a button when you're supposed to fire a missile you're not doing anything active and then there's engineer roles which is Literally, like, something overheats and you have to push a button or else your score gets stained, but nothing happens. Whatever lights up. How would you... What would be the good version of this ride as... as, How would you plus this up? I think you have... You start with the roles. You make them more important and Mm -hmm. actually impact the experience that you have. I think to start, you have, like, five different versions of this. Like, even, like, Guardians of the Galaxy... They are not that different, but there are different songs and there are different screens that they show you. So there are different patterns of how it moves. So just start with five and let the player choose, you know, impact what it does. I think the set pieces are very important. Like Star Tours is epic, more epic than this one because you go through more interesting things. You take out the Quaxium, you take out Hondo. You do it Chewy-centric. I would even maybe do it, I mean, I know this would take away from the Falcon, but you know, you can have three cockpits that are Falcon and two cockpits that are an X-Wing and something else that is, you know, a TIE fighter. If the whole point is that you can be with the Resistance or with the First Order. Very true. What would you do? I, I think I hear what you're saying about it being a hard ride to get a lot of people through, but I think that was a wise decision because... Really, the flag, the hallmark of it is just being on this ship because it's so iconic. And whenever you get out of the main queue, you're kind of funneled through some hallways into the main like lounge area of the Falcon before you go to That's the cockpit. Cool. And it's you. It's this creative, clever thing where no matter what, it feels like you're the one getting on the Falcon, even though you know reasonably that a bunch of people are going to different simulators than you are. What I would do is I would maintain that. And I think my biggest thing is I would just make it a much more like a very fun and easy to fly program, but it's like way less on rails and it's more just like battlefront or squadrons where you're just dogfighting because that's all anybody wants to do in this is dogfighters. Yeah, you just go to whatever you want. Or, and like, then somebody gets to punch it 
into light speed, right? That's like the only fun thing in the end about this is that the co-pilot gets to punch it. So if, if you're riding this, you want to sit in the front right seat because you're going to have the most yeah. fun. But what I would do is I would keep the roles the same. Um, the engineer role is essential because it ends up being the single rider spectator role. So mm-hmm. the engineer role is the, the least active. So you have a grandma there or somebody who wanted to rush through the line and not wait through the thing. And there's a single mm-hmm. rider that's filling up space. They get put in a spectator role, but it it's still fun to be in there and, and ride it. And then I would make the pilot and co-pilot roles more active. Pilots actually flying and co-pilots trying to do something and like doing some weapon systems. And then I think my biggest plus up here is this would add so much variation to it. So you have a spectator role, you have flight roles, and then instead of having somebody seated in the back that's pushing a button for a torpedo or whatever, you actually have two people peered off on their own gunner pods, like in the actual Millennium Falcon, like in A New Hope, where you might not get to put a headset on because it's kind of a a sanitary thing, but you're in a free-floating thing with a big gun that goes pew, 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 and you're able to hear the other people kind of telling you what. So you... So like you have like you build connectivity and community with the other people in your thing, but it's still like a fun gunner seat thing. And like literally you could put all the gunner seats in a different area and like use space a little more efficiently too. Right. Like there are are ways of like using this and think of all the variation then. Like every time you ride, you have that's four different experiences instead Mm of kind of one experience on top of doing different things. I think it'd be so much more fun. Mm-hmm. I like that. What do you think about what do you think about the cantina? I thought the cantina was fun. Again, also for reference, it's like the famous cantina in Star Wars, yeah. but they took out uh, Rex. He was this very beloved character from the original incarnation of Star Tours, mm-hmm. and they put him there as a DJ, which I think is very fun. And I think another thing that Galaxy Edge did very well, especially at the beginning, because I think they scaled it back, is that they went all in with. You're in another planet. So like the food, they it's like, you know, it's not like hamburgers and whatever. It's like these weird things that they created that, I mean, you recognize the ingredients, but it's actually different. So all the drinks were different. Ariel and I had the one that um, numbed your lips and your mm-hmm. tongue, which was fascinating. Uh, again, they have a problem with capacity. We had to make a reservation and you're timed. I, I guess it's still the same. Well, with COVID, even more. You had like 40 minutes to be there. So it's like very quick. They come, they ask for your order. You kind of have like two limits and you have to go. I would love to spend like three hours there. Yeah. Just sitting down, listening to music. They have this fun spiel, I guess, once an hour. It's something breaks down and they have to like knock on it and the lights go mm-hmm. off and turn on. It's like It's like a fun... It's also the first place in Disneyland where regular people can drink alcohol. It was a big deal. But give us your... You actually have a... You have the taste of a, a cocktail maker. What did you think about the cantina? <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, I am looking forward to nothing more than just being able to go hang out in a dark bar and talk to a good bartender and just like do nothing in a cocktail bar after COVID is over that is such a fun experience of just like being in an adult space with adults and talking it's it's such an intimate fun thing and i find just the 
40 minutes in and out, two drinks max. They're like sugary, everyone can like them drinks experience to be so antithetical to what like hanging out in a Star Wars saloon would be. Like, yeah. I just want to be in there like and hanging out and I want something like as fun as the fuzzy tauntaun like numbing drink was, which was good. I also want to be able to like order like a nice like old fashioned variant or something, right? Like something strong and brown as opposed to purple and, <laughs> and numbing. Like I'm all here for weird drinks. They should all be weird, but there should be it. I think they shot a little bit closer towards like rainforest cafe than they did to like an actual like fun cantina experience for adults. Mm, yeah. Which I was, was disappointing to me. Like I, I get why they did it, but if you're going to do this, then I don't think even try and don't even try to like sell it as a bar with snacks. Just try and sell it as like, as a character breakfast spot, you know, which like these, right. there's these big kind of food halls all over the Disney parks where it's designed to be a quick, all in meal, full service character experience. And that's what this should have been like, get people in and out. They get to like pretend like they're in the cantina, but it's not this thing rather than kind of this half, half bar experience, half like child's play place experience. It doesn't work for me. That makes sense. And I think that's where space constraints comes in, right? For that to yeah. work, they need to do it like three times the size. And I would say, I remember when they first announced that in Disneyland, in the California resort, it was going to be in Disneyland. My first reaction was like, it doesn't fit there. It should be in DCA. But then you look at a map, mm -hmm. and literally there is no other place where it can be. It's huge. And even with the size, all of these things had to be so constrained just because of where it is. And I would imagine, people say that it's exactly the same in Orlando, even though they have more space. Yeah. The, the Orlando, we didn't really touch on the differences between the Orlando and California parks, which there are none except for apparently the colors are different because the sun's different. Literally, that's like the only thing I could find was like the arrangements and the colors and shapes are a bit different based on like how the light hits things. But overall, it really just seems like there are carbon copies, which I think mm -hmm. is a bad decision for Florida because Florida, I mean, the liquor licenses are easier they have more space, they have more area to zone, they have more to grow, and frankly, it's a worse park. It's an improving park, but it's a park that has no thematic identity and is still struggling, and they could have just killed half of it, including half of the Hollywood stuff, and nobody would have noticed. Yeah, I get I get the, you know, the budgetary, again, business side constraints of doing that, but I agree that there is a middle point where they could take the big set pieces and keep them, but just reshuffle them. Right? You might not create a new ride, but make it different. Make it seem different. Call it different. It doesn't have to be the same one. So it sounds like just the lack of things to do and the kind of the breaking of immersion is our strongest problem here because Disney is typically so good at having little things to do and a lot of immersion. And I think that brings us to the the next phase of Galaxy's Edge and Star Wars in the parks, which is the Galactic Star Cruiser. And based on the track record with Galaxy's Edge, I'm kind of worried about this being the premium experience that they are trying to pitch it as. Yeah, so the Star Cruiser is going to be this... It's technically a hotel, but it, you should actually think about it as a cruise. You're going to go on a cruise in Disney World for three days. 
I think it's two nights, right? Yeah. Where you're going to get there. And then as part of the cruise, you get to go on excursions to the to the theme parks. Well, in this case, only Galaxy's Edge. And where everything is kind of choreographed for you to have a very specific Star Wars experience. Which sounds great. I think in order for this to work, it has to be over the top all the time. Right? Yeah. They have to maintain a level of... We, we talked about how we, did, we haven't ridden... Rise of the Resistance, but it's supposed to be amazing in every sense of the world. It seems like this has to be at that level all the time. And literally, like, it literally doesn't have windows. It's going to have screens so that yeah. you think you're in space. And you, you can technically go and explore the hotel and find places and activities. But again, how do you make that organic whilst it still feels fun? I'm very curious. It's supposed to be like, if you look, have you seen the, did you see the latest mm -hmm. pictures of the rooms? It has like a bed for adults and then two bunk beds for kids. So I'm like, can I go with Ariella? Do we need yeah. to have two kids? So there are, I think, two person. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's confusing. I think there it's are like two very... person cabins, but it, and it's all priced based off of essentially the room. It's all priced like cruises where you're supposed to have a room and you're booking it. And just, I really wonder if there's enough to sustain. It's got to be a mostly adult clientele that can afford to do this or, or wants to do this. Bringing four adults seems like it's not very feasible based on how these cabins are priced and structured. And I mean, I get the whole immersion of they intend like you're just going to have like four hours at Batu at Galaxy's Edge. But I'm assuming they're going to give us some sort of rise of resistance. Uh, oh, pass. Type things. Yeah, or that, that's yeah, probably yeah. the first thing they're going to have you do because it makes sense thematically. But once I've ridden the two rides, what what stops me from leaving Disney Star Wars immersion and just going and writing to Toy Story. Toy Story or like <laughs> Splash Mountain or whatever. I, I guess I can't do Splash Mountain in Florida from there easily. But all in all, it just seems it's it's very Galaxy's Edge is a very poor counterpart to I think what this thing was gonna be. And I just am interested to see if they can pull it off. And this is probably, I mean, they have great cruises. They're great at immersion. They're great at all this. I think Galaxy's Edge is more of a fluke than anything, but it's a fluke in a series of bad decisions around Star Wars. Yeah. For me, the biggest takeaway, I think, of the Star Cruiser is that I like the boldness of let's create something new. We have yes. the theme parks. We have the hotels. How do we create, how do we bring it even further to combine all of this into something that is greater than the parts and they are shooting for the most difficult one to start with right they could have just started with oh you're going to stay in the polynesian right. and you're going to have an all, an experience around jungles right and you're going to go to animal kingdom and to jungle cruise and something else right it's not a hundred percent you have free time but it's kind of you know, we're going to, again, back to curation. We're going to create the experience for you and make it premium. Yeah. They're going, like, all the way. But I I like that. I, like, I think we both appreciate the level of immersion of Disney parks, and that's why we like them versus yeah. Six Flags, right? When people tell us, why do you spend so much money going to the... There is something about it. And this could be great, but it could also very easily not. And they're aiming for, like, just shy of PG Westworld. Right, like they're right, yeah. They're really trying to 
to shoot that high and they have the hospitality and the cruise ship chops to be able to pull something like this off but I think reading the tea leaves of where they're at right now I don't think it will be as immersive as they will but hey maybe this is where I can actually have that adult Star Wars cantina experience is by paying six thousand dollars to stay in a fake spaceship we'll see for two nights for two nights I would say we've joked, but we don't joke that we kind of started the podcast to get comped to go mm-hmm. review this place. It's the only reason. Yeah, I don't think Alex is going to let me pay that much money to go stay in a Star Wars <laughs> hotel for two nights. Rightly so, probably, <laughs> until we're millionaires. All right, so that kind of brings us to the end of the sequel trilogy. Trilogy, as far as the two big things we want to talk about... But before we close the episode, I think it's prudent to talk about the future of Star Wars. It's been broached multiple times over the last few months with the second season of The Mandalorian and the Disney shareholder, stakeholder, shareholder, stakeholder presentation. What was it? Investor Day. Investor Day. Thank you. Please. (laughs) So we've talked about it on the show a bit, but I I do want to connect where we're both at with the future of Star Wars, what we've talked about and what we're thinking about. Yeah, I think kind of something that we talked about is that right after Rise of the Resistance came out, there was this quote, I think, from Bob Iger, where he was like, you know, he was very cautious and political, but like, we misread, you know, maybe the amount of hunger that there was for this. They released Mm -hmm. a Star Wars movie a year for five years which was kind of a lot. These three plus Rogue One and Solo. And then I think The Mandalorian came out like a month before Rise of the Skywalker or like a month after. Was it a January thing? No, it was... It was, it was a month before. It was, it was like November. In November. Okay. But it was, I think, kind of what we said and how it landed. It was, it was, it was like a nice antidote to Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. If Rise of Skywalker was quick... No character development. No one is talking with each other. Mandalorian was the opposite. It was like, we're going to take it very slow. We're going to show you a world a year. It's going to be kind of a side adventure. And it had an amazing reaction, independently of if Carl really enjoys it or not. But I, I want to hear your thoughts in a bit, because they connect very well. And Disney went from, we need to take it very slow, to basically overreacting to how successful the Mandalorian was. Because on Investor Day, they announced... Rangers of the New Republic, a TV show. Ahsoka, TV show. Andor, TV show. Obi-Wan Kenobi, TV show. The Bad Batch, TV show. Visions, TV show. Lando, TV show. Acolyte, TV show. A Droid Story, TV show. And that's it from Star Wars. Plus, a Rogue Squadron movie directed by Patty Jenkins. On top of the already announced Taika Waititi movie that I guess they didn't mention. So they literally went from, we want to take it very slow, to here are 10 TV shows. All of a sudden, they're going to come up over the next, like, two years. So, yeah, why don't you walk us through what your thoughts on The Mandalorian and kind of how you reacted to this investor the announcement? Well, Star Wars has always built, been built on scarcity, which that's not to be said that it couldn't be built on something else. But in the end of the day, there are nine Star Wars movies in the canonical I guess we call it the Skywalker saga now because that's what they wanted to call it in Disney marketing in the months leading up to episode nine. So the Skywalker saga has nine movies of those nine movies. 
like three are good. That's generous. I let's say three are good. Two are great. I would say three good for Carl probably means like three are very good for most people, and another three are okay. And but yeah, the I majority of them yes. are o- are okay to bad. I think yes, by most people's standards, they're okay to bad, but because they're these like very nostalgic things and Mm -hmm. they kind of shaped the taste of our generation with the prequels or the with gen x with the original trilogy and now zoomers i guess kind of get entree into star wars with this i don't can't really quite tell with how they're grasping onto it but it was built on just kind of your mind filling the blanks or you reading all this crazy other stuff to like kind of get more immersed in the world but ultimately it was a it became such a popular franchise because it's such a low effort franchise to invest in. Like you don't really need to know too much going in. You enjoy it. You've seen it. It's a great spectacle. And as opposed to something like the MCU where the MCU just broke the universe because it was this Hail Mary pass by a company going under trying to like connect all of their cheapest IP together. They had, they hadn't sold off. And with that, they really doubled down on how big and multifaceted the narratives are in the MCU and just how it can go anywhere and how there's just all this stuff everywhere. And they've built Mm -hmm. upon that. So whereas Star Wars was starting from a place of like this one filmmaker kind of dictating this entire world and growing out of it, Marvel always had multiple creators, multiple views, a lot of conflicting ideologies and and plot points and everything and it had a lot of room to grow and create this expansive universe whereas star wars is in is the exact same place as harry potter where it's tied to this one vision and this one creator and kind of can't outgrow it but so therefore everything just becomes this black black hole around kind of the word of god of george lucas so now we just instead of what we talked about with the anthology films like where we could have you know, like Wes Anderson making a prep school movie on Coruscant or whatever, or like, I guess young <laughs> Amidala would be good for, that could be a Sofia Coppola film, like Amidala as a teenager. That sounds great. Yeah. Instead right. of something that's like actually like different and new and expansive, it's all the stuff attached to this period of Star Wars, which we didn't cover in the main franchise because it's frankly kind of boring. Like it's, it's just all this lukewarm stuff in the filler between the story that you like. And that really disappoints uh, look, me. Lukewarm or Leia worm? Ha 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm just like, I don't know. Obi-Wan, I'll watch Obi-Wan because I like Ewan McGregor and I'm interested to see what that is. I'm interested in the uh, the Acolyte because it's Leslie Headland from Russian Doll and it's a High Republic show. So it's the only thing in here not directly in the kind of return of the jedi through rise of skywalker era mm-hmm. so or i guess kenobi's pre original trilogy but it's it's in timelines we haven't considered everything else is just the same <laughs> yeah i think when we were talking about even harry potter i changed my mind i think you know last week i said that i would like like the marauders map tv show and i'm like mm-hmm. no just go like two thousand years ago, yeah. And like you know, just people discovering magic or whatever. And he's like, yeah, there are ten shows, and they are all about exactly the same, except for the acolyte a little bit, right? Yeah. Everything is connected, very well connected. So I'm like, is this it? 
Like, could we literally do something around the first Jedi? How he talked with the Force? Could we, you know? Like, was this really the only issues that the Jedi ever have? If you want to focus on the Jedi as, you know, the point of the galaxy. And I think it's what you're saying. It's an overreaction to the, how do you say, the the word of the God. Word of God, yeah. Yeah. Or, again, pandering in a way to, no, no. The only thing people understand have to be connected to the Skywalker time. Similar, Harry Potter, right? Everything has to be connected to this. But it was, it it was very disheartening to see that they announced ten things, ten TV shows, yeah, and they were all connected, basically directly, to this. It reminds me of in. So, I am a product of American public schools, which have a skewed perspective on American history. But the we spent probably half of every American history class I ever took on the period from like 1830 to 1870, which <laughs> obviously is an important point in American history. But one, you kind of lose like the context and the bigger picture by focusing on that. And it gets pretty boring covering, covering the lead up to the civil war and re- like the beginning of reconstruction. And that's it. Like you kind of just want to hear new stories and having other stories really enforces colors of like the ripple effects of the civil war or the stuff leading up to the civil war. Like the civil war wasn't just a vacuum where all of a sudden we decided like slavery was evil. It was a million things pushing to a breaking point where it finally had to be a conversation. And same thing here is like, there's so much, it's an entire history of another galaxy that has really clear established thousand year arcs that we've talked about in the context of these movies. And we're just going to focus on, you know, what happened to the clone troopers from an episode of Rebels? Like, no, please. It's something else. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a bad batch dig there. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it doesn't sound like we're going to get it, at least not in the next two and a half years. Have we heard anything else around the Taika movie? I think they just said he's working on it. I was going to talk about the movies because we really didn't get any film announcements, which I think might be more kind of what Iger's saying here is recognizing that the films need to be special and maybe they can still be these self-contained things, but maybe higher budget as opposed to every piece needing of, I don't think that they're going to be event films like the MCU where like rogue Squadron's not going to be the Avengers of like six Star Wars shows. Right. I hope. Yeah. I don't think it, it can be based on like what they've talked about it being and, and whatnot, but yeah, there was a Taika Waititi so. project, which I don't think has been officially announced, but it's in the works. He worked a little bit on Mandalorian. Patty Jenkins is doing the aforementioned Rogue Squadron, which we'll see what that is. I, Disney wants Patty, I think, and Patty wants to, I think, explore Beyond Warner a bit. There was a there's a long gestating Ryan Johnson trilogy, which I'm assuming just isn't happening because it hasn't been spoken of publicly in years. And then there's the Benioff and Weiss thing that got canceled. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think we're both still holding hope for the Ryan Johnson to happen and to be different. I think the Taika, yeah, they haven't talked about it, but I feel like they did say something, maybe not on Investor, because I remember him tweeting, oh, I'm finally being able to talk about this. I'm working hard on the script. And that's it. it. Like, yeah. I don't think they said what it's about, the timeline or anything like that. Uh, you know. 
we've talked about Taika's arc and how Thor, Thor Ragnarok might not be as different as we think of it as it is within MCU, but he's at least a different voice. Let's mm-hmm. see if he takes it in a different way. Just like Ryan Johnson was kind of a different one, and I think that's why we love The Last Jedi, right? Yeah. We're like, wait, well, it's a little bit slow. They're just escaping because they're out of gasoline. It's like, well, maybe that's the point. Right? But I think the problem is that Ryan is like the one person that I think managed to maintain his voice and do what he wanted. And for better and ultimately for worse, that's what kind of wrecked things here. It's very rare that a filmmaker gets to kind of maintain their voice on something mm-hmm. that big in the system. And that's something that, look, like I went into this year thinking, okay, maybe if I have to choose one big thing to to be interested in, I can kind of get into the MCU this year because WandaVision's coming out. The Loki show looks interesting. Eternals is going to be something like we're getting a bit more cosmic with all of this. And I very much enjoyed the first three episodes of WandaVision. No, the fourth. Did you see the fourth episode? Yeah. Okay. Spoilers on the fourth episode. Skip ahead like a few seconds. The fourth episode is just the most boring Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. level just nonsense, (laughs) boring militaristic computer screens rehash of what you could already figure out the first three episodes was about. And it was so stupid and pandering. I hated it. There was basically no Wanda or Vision. And no plot. It left you exactly where the previous episode left you and really didn't give you anything else you couldn't figure out through critical thinking. Yep. And that's exactly what all of this stuff is going to be. And I'm so frustrated with that. Hopefully they bring it back. They release a teaser for the rest of the the season and it looks good. So Pete actually said that He's like, the one way that they could sell me on this, that this would work, is if this is a parody of all the really boring procedural Marvel stuff, and that Wanda is actually creating a boring procedural Marvel world that's wrapped around her <laughs> world. But I think that's giving it a little too much, uh, too much thought. And Peter I, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, on that note, I have a question for you, which I guess, you know, could act as the AUA, but I think it's also a great way to close it out, which is... Where do you see this going? If you want to, you know, move, go to the future 10 years and look back and take into, I mean, tell me everything. Tell me what would you like to happen? What do you think would happen? Because it exists where it's Disney. And just even, you know, what would this even mean for other types of franchises? So what do you, what do you think is going to happen? Where, what does this mean? I think we're going to see so much spending on content over the next few years as people try to figure out what content works and what doesn't as the economics of streaming become the dominant economics of how Hollywood studios make money. So I think we're going to see this from so many fronts. Like this is not just going to be a Disney thing. CBS is already prepping to do this with with Star Trek and has been doing it under the radar pretty well with a lot of their Star Trek shows. We'll see how like the Noah's Holly Star Trek factors into it and whatnot, but this is going to be kind of the default mode of streaming franchises, I think, over the next decade. But I think it's going to collapse. Like, there's no way that's sustainable from a cost perspective, but also from an audience perspective, because 
unlike the MCU where people were willing to see an event movie every three months to a year, people are not going to make time for what? So this is... Sounds like once a week. Right. So for like 2,000 hours of Star Wars content a year, they're they're not going to make time for that. They're going to prioritize what they like. This is all going to settle down. A lot of these shows are going to die. And... We're just going to have all these strange half-funded visions littering the history of this franchise and every other Hollywood franchise. So I think we're going to return to, I think, more editorializing and, and more streamlined franchise filmmaking. But the next few years, like I'm just planning to engage with what I'm interested in engaging with, dropping it when it gets lame, if it gets lame, and just not being precious with anything because... Otherwise, trying to keep up with the Joneses here about like all this stuff is just going to drive me crazy because it's not just going to be Star <laughs> Wars. It's going to be every, it's they're making an alien TV show, right? Like it's going to be every single franchise out there, especially the Disney ones. I agree. I think the biggest thing for me is that with all of the content trending to be ubiquitous, ubiquitous, I never know how to say that in English. There is really not a difference that studios are going to be able to make, like we were saying, right? When Iger says we're going to take it slow, just saying we're going to take it slow with the movies and then releases in 10 series, it's not something you do in a vacuum. Yeah. If you have, like you said, 2,000 hours of Star Wars content in the next two years, the next Star Wars movie is not going to be that special. Sure, it's going to look a little bit better and stuff like that, but this seems like way too much. Like, even Marvel that is used at pumping this level of, like... Marvel pumped, what, 20-something movies in the in the last, whatever, 15 years? Yeah. He's doing, I think, six shows in the next, like, two years and a half. Which is almost half of what Star Wars is doing. And I, I just don't see how that is going to be able to... They're not going to be able to have the cake and eat it, too. Of saying, yeah. like, we want to explore it as much as possible while keep it special. And... You know, maybe the, I think I this might be, it's a weird thing, but like Avatar is going to be an interesting thing to compare. They haven't had a TV, uh, movie in 10 years. There is no TV shows. And now they're supposed to come back with these like four movies in whatever, seven years. I don't even know. But like, that's one where I'm going to be like, you know, are they going to realize that not everything has to have 10 TV shows and movies to be widely successful? I'm interested in seeing what happens. Uh, because it, I just don't think they can get both things. I really like your point throughout this episode of scarcity and the power that it has and how to manage it. And for Star Wars, they're going to have to choose. Either keep it scarce and special or make it super ubiquitous and be fine with it diluting. And yeah. people saying, I'm not going to see half the things. Right. And I mean, maybe this is how we push through fandoms and like we kind of force these fandoms to collapse and realize this lesson because you know right now we're we're kind of framing this as you get like one really perfect like petty four every two years in this beautiful like this this dessert of a star wars film or you can get like a bunch of like bags and bags of runts or something instead, like just 
they're not as filling, they're not as interesting, but they're there. But in reality, like I think to a lot of people, they look at something like The Last Jedi and it feels like they waited two years and then they got like a, a spinach salad or something, right? <laughs> it's it's not what they wanted and they're upset about it. But if every once in a while there's a spinach salad mixed in with a bunch of M&Ms or runts, like they might be happier. Also, I would like to issue a correction here real quick, which is that I said 2,000 hours of Star Wars content a year. I don't know how I added an extra zero and a two. 10 episodes of 10 shows would be 100 hours. So 100 hours is doable, but you add it up a bunch of time, you get to 2,000. <laughs> right. But just to put it in context, if you take out like the Clone Wars, right now there is what? 20 hours of Star Wars canon? Yeah. Over 40 years? Exactly. Right. Like the nine films times like what? Two? Like, yeah, literally like 20 hours from the actual yeah, film 25 with a couple of things but yeah it's it's a drastic explosion of of canon and content over the norm so i have a aua here to to wrap from from my perspective which is quickly we've reviewed all of this over i guess close to seven hours now just this, the history of this modern permutation of this franchise and what happened? What went wrong? What went what, right? Like, in the end, what was the fundamental thing in your perspective that went wrong here? Like, what's one big thing? I think for me, the biggest thing is that Disney lost the force for the trees. Mm -hmm. They got very excited about what Star Wars could mean over the next, over the first six years that they owned it that they completely lost sight of what it could mean for the next 25. Yeah. I think they tried to go too fast, too quickly, without thinking, with half-baked things. And now they're in panic mode. In 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 business school, we learn about this framework like called the uh, strategic inflection points. Mm -hmm. And how the closer you are to this... To them, the more difficult it is to react. And the better the best way to react is when you are before they actually happen. Because you have more time, you have more flexibility, you have more resources. Once they happen, you are in panic mode. You are already in free fall. You have to deal with public things apart from other business things. And I think this is a perfect example of they went over the cliff too quickly. And now it's very, very complicated. And all the measures that they take feel like half measures, right? All saying, well, they're going to do 11, 10 shows and plus a movie in the next whatever, three years. So, well, yeah, you're you're overcompensating again to your overcompensation. Yeah, I think that's it. I think this is spot on. Like, that's exactly what happened here. And it's really... There is no different lesson here than if we did an episode on the DC expanded mm -hmm. universe. It's the exact same problem. Kevin Feige took a bunch of small characters, created kind of a shared universe with them, and united them all with the Avengers and made the MCU. The original intent was not to be where we're at now with Endgame. That could have been like mm -hmm. Feige's wildest dreams, but it was it was an underdog story that kind of worked out. That ultimately, 
worked out even before Disney got involved and before they had kind of the money and clout to actually start buying characters back and doing things. It was a very slow, organic growth that was, I think, intentional every step of the way. Whereas with the DCEU and Star Wars under Disney, it's the same problem, which is trying to reach the point where we can have a critical mass where enough people care about enough different properties and characters and things within a franchise to kind of bring them all together for a story where we don't have to define who these characters are are or why they matter and just like make you want to see these characters in a story and that's just something that you can't fake like people need time not just like content time but like actual time to sit with and process these characters like it's the same with movie stars like movie stars don't happen over they they happen because you see an a person in a role over and over again or in roles over a period of years and you get used to wanting to see them. You can't force someone to fall in love with something overnight. And that's what I think happened with the modern Star Wars and DC to a much like different extent. And that's what I think will continue to happen if we keep trying to master plan all this stuff rather than make cautious steps and see what works. Yeah. I think the the last five minutes are a perfect encapsulation of our thoughts over <laughs> three episodes of like an hour and a half each. Well, maybe next time we should lead with that and we don't have to do seven hours of... <laughs> of Let's start with the IUA. It's like we do it in the news <laughs> for one random episode. No, that was, I think that was... I mean, I don't know if that would have we would have gotten there without exploring a lot of the things in detail. I don't either. And I'm glad we did this because I think the first episode really helped us kind of establish for this show how we are thinking about comp the Disney company and that shows in stuff like your blog post that you did. We're really trying to look at this from a lot of different angles and look at the people involved. But if we had just done this in two hours, we wouldn't have, I think, to my earlier point, had the time to sit with this and think about this. This is been colored by all this news and change since we started this show and it's good to be able to i think put a button on it here and to put a button to the saga and put a button to this episode this was fun it was and you know what we're not going to talk about star wars until probably next week so <laughs> i'm sure there's going to be a reason it always comes up yeah but uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm going to take it from Carl this week and say, please remember to rate, subscribe, reach out to us on social media and Twitter. And we'll talk to you next week. See you later.